Hey guys, you know we like to bring you the best podcast available whenever possible. And you're probably familiar with Shane Waters and Gemma Hoskins from their work on the Netflix documentary, The Keepers. Or maybe you're familiar with Shane with his interview with Nancy Grace about his involvement in discovering the true identity of some of the victims of the unsolved redheaded murders case. Shane is back at it with his co-host Wendy for their podcast, Foul Play. This season, called The Maps, they're investigating the case of serial killer duel Wesley Shermantin and Lauren Herzog. They were best friends who evolved from hunting animals to hunting and torturing humans, some of whom were even their friends. Their reign of terror spanned 15 years and is estimated that they killed more than 60 people. So after being convicted of only a couple of these murders, Shermantine started drawing a huge map. It took up an entire wall that showed the locations of their victims. One of the locations was an abandoned well where they found several of these bodies. And there are lots of other locations of remains that still haven't been explored yet. Listen to the first episode right here and then subscribe to Foul Play. And then listen to the rest of the season on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. On March 18th, 1999, Trey, 20, verifying the ADW suspect, Wesley Sherman and Lauren Herzog were arrested and later convicted of multiple murders in and around the London area of California. The pair are known as the Speed Freak Killers, and their reign of terror spanned for 15 years, from 1984 to 1999. This series focuses on the estimated 60 victims and their families along with the investigations surrounding the cases. Why did two best friends evolve from hunting animals to hunting humans? How did two serial killers get away with potentially dozens of murders for more than a decade? You're listening to Foul Play. Our new season is called The Maps. And this is episode one. After countless days of research, Shane and I went to the areas around where these tragedies took place. The information we present, along with the interviews of key figures and families of the victims, are a result of our on-the-ground investigation. Thank you to those who took the time to share their stories and memories. This case has been an emotional roller coaster for us, but we cannot even begin to imagine what it has been like to live it. If you have any information about these cases, no matter how small or insignificant you think it may be, we want to hear from you. You can remain anonymous if you prefer, but please come forward. Contact us on shane at shadowspod.com or use the submission form on our website, shadowspod.com. That's S-H-A-D-O-W-S-P-O-D.com. While our focus in this series is not on the killers, 
We believe to give this story justice, we have to start at the very beginning. Wesley Sherman Time was born on February 24, 1966, to Wesley Sherman Tyne Sr. and Sue, who were a wealthy middle-class family. He was the middle child of three, with an older and a younger sister. His father was a successful construction worker who built both commercial and residential properties, which allowed them to live a life of relative luxury. Wesley and his sisters were showered with expensive material gifts throughout their childhoods and were envied by many of their schoolmates and the neighboring children. In this documentary, Born to Kill, The Thriller Killers, directed by Neil Edwards and produced by Extreme Entertainment in association with Sky Television, we can hear Sherman Tyne's younger sister, Dolly, along with Scott Smith, a local reporter, describe what it was like to grow up in their home. It was great growing up there. We were all spoiled growing up, you know, we had everything imaginable. Horses, our dirt bikes, and, you know, miniature Corvette go-karts, anything we wanted, you know, we had. They were lavished with the toys that they wanted. He was, you know, gave, given a new car when he was in high school, even before he graduated his graduation present. However, as is often the case, not all was as it seemed. From the outside, it looked like the Shermantines had it all, but the reality was very different. There is no disputing that the family were successful and lived a luxurious lifestyle. However, they were also known locally for other reasons. This was a family who had a reputation for getting what they wanted, whatever the cost. Anyone who crossed them soon regretted it. Generally, people were just polite to them and avoided the trouble. It wasn't only those outside of the family that were scared of the Shermantines. Their own children suffered too. Wesley's mother was a violent alcoholic and she subjected everyone in the household to domestic abuse. Here is another quote from the documentary with Dolly talking about her mother and what it was like to grow up with her. She was very abusive. I have scars. I had been shot by her. I have been stabbed with a barbecue fork several times. I've had broke nose from her, stuff like that. She, she beat beat us. She also explains how her mother once took an industrial broom and broke the handle across her sister's back. It wasn't just Wesley's mother that was abusive towards the children. Apparently, both the mother and father would shoot guns at Wesley's feet to make him dance, on, dance as a form of punishment while he was growing up. It sounds like the violence from the couple was not contained to the home. As an example, there was an instance where a customer did not pay Wesley's father some money that was owed. His mother took a bulldozer around the man's house, almost killing him and his family in the process. Here we have a quote from Douglas Jacobson, Sherman Tyne's defense attorney, describing what happened. His mother took somebody's house out with a bulldozer one day. She apparently was upset at somebody who hadn't paid a bill uh, to her husband, went straight for the man's house, drove through his house. Apparently the bulldozer blade came right into the bedroom where the man was sleeping and missed him by 
inches. Of course, none of this justifies Shermantine's actions, but it's important to understand the people behind the crimes. Lauren Herzog was born on the 8th of December 1965 to parents Jerry and Melvy Johnson Herzog. He had an older sister, Laurie-Anne. He had a modest childhood. His father was a lather by trade and a plastering contractor. Everyone who knew Lauren as a child said he was quiet and would blend into the background. Linden was a small farming town of less than 2,000 people, approximately 75 miles northeast of San Francisco in San Joaquin County. This is where Shermantine and Herzog grew up. They lived just across the street from one another and became very good friends from a very young age. They did everything together, both in and out of school, and became inseparable. Like most boys, they were inquisitive and spent their childhoods exploring the wider area where they lived, playing in the rivers, hills, rocks, and mine shafts of the surrounding countryside. The Shermantine family took Herzog under their wing and the boys often took trips with Shermantine Senior, who was an avid hunter. He would take them away camping and teach them to hunt and fish. They were an unusual pairing. Shermantine was the more dominant of the two and was a bully. He was known as a stinker, while Herzog was more subdued and would just follow along. As they got older, and like most teenagers in the area, they went out to find things to do to entertain themselves. Being a farming community, there wasn't much in the way of entertainment, so they had to make their own. The young adults in the area would drive around in fast cars, have parties in the orchards, drink too much, and eventually many turned to drugs. At the time, the drug of the day was methamphetamine. This was because the chemicals required to make it were easy to purchase without arousing suspicion. Methamphetamine has many other names, including meth, crank, crystal meth, and speed, which is how Shermantine and Herzog got the name, the Speed Freak Killers. We will use the term crank as this is what it was referred to locally at that time. Addiction to crank can lead to serious changes in the brain, including delusions, hallucinations, and paranoia. As the brain develops tolerance to the drug, users need more and more to achieve the same effect, which is what leads to addiction. We spoke to Tracy Meyer, who grew up at the same time in the Linden area, about what it was like. Tracy was friends with one of the killer's victims, Cindy Vanderheiden, and has been helping us with this podcast. You will hear Tracy mention John and Terry. These are Cindy's parents, who we will talk about more in a later episode. So Cindy was a couple of years younger than me. I knew her because we all rode the school bus together. Because there was like one school bus went and picked everybody up. Middle schools, the high school kids, and we all, one bus did it all. And from school and from hanging out out front, with the, we called ourselves the partiers. So we weren't jocks. And a jock was somebody that played sports and cheerleading and all that. And we weren't stoners. And stoners were the people that hung out in the smoking section or the parking lot. So we were the partiers, we were floaters, that's what we called ourselves. And we hung out, out in front of the school. And uh, like I said, we, you know, we didn't do school rallies in the middle of the day like they did. We were always at the lake playing Frisbee, playing Frisbee and hanging out with everybody in their fast cars. And then on the weekends, so we used to cruise Lodi Avenue. And then after I graduated and she was still in high school, ran into her because her dad owned all the bars, you know? So that's when I became close to John. Is I used to ride. I was always on the back of a Harley going somewhere. And we always stopped on the bars there. And so John owned the Linden Bar, you know, and they, they, the bar, the old, the old corners right there by his house. So they were always there too. And then his wife, Terry, ended up bartending at the old corner. So we would stop there too, you know. So you ran into him all over. I never drank at the Linden Inn when he owned it there. 
We stopped in a couple of times on bikes, but John wasn't there. But I knew he owned it. What did he look like? She was just about five five, five six. Wasn't super skinny. She's normal, like I don't know, one hundred twenty five. She was she was she was thin, but she had blonde hair, kind of dirty blonde, a little bit darker at times. It depended if it was summer or not. In summer, we were all down at the river, you know, uh, the Macaulay River. We would go floating, so that we'd go up past Cindy's dad's house. We'd go all the way up to the fish hatchery, put our tubes in there, and then we'd float all the way down to the Maxville Bridge. We did a lot of floating and a lot of drinking in the inventor tubes. Let me tell you what, that was a four or five hour float. Cindy was bubbly. Cindy was bubbly and happy. That's why everybody calls her Tigger. She was just kind of bouncy, you know? Tiggers are wonderful, you know? <laughs> she was bubbly and happy, always smiling, always smiling. You know, we both partied a little too hard. And it's kind of like what I keep saying, and I guess it's important for me to, to get out there that, you know, that everybody was always looking down on people that, you know, did methamphetamine or got caught up in the, in the drug scene and all that. But I'm telling you, like, we just had no idea the repercussions of that drug. We just really didn't. I mean, I graduated in 83. And that was the first time I had ever seen that drug was graduation year of 83, you know. So a little bit before Cindy went missing. I was really surprised by its effects. It wasn't like doing a line of cocaine that wore off. I mean, it would keep you up all night long. I remember being so surprised the first night I couldn't sleep. I could not understand what was happening. But we didn't have the Internet. So, I mean, we didn't have access to all this information that everybody does today. Um, we didn't have an open line of communication with our doctors, our, you know, nobody went to therapy back then either. You didn't have any support to find out, you know, especially when you got addicted. I mean, it's so addictive. And after that happened, I mean, there was just no help out there. You know, it's, it wasn't widely talked about like it is today. I mean, you didn't hear about the opioid crisis or uh, fentanyl laced, whatever. We had no idea. And by the time we knew, it was too late. We were all addicted, you know? And you're talking about a small little town that had one bowling alley, a couple movie theaters, but I mean, that was really it. So that's why we hung out at the bars a lot too. And it was made it a whole lot more fun at John's bars because they always had karaoke and stuff like that. And then we were already out in the country and we didn't worry about dry, drinking and driving too much. You know, we just had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. When cocaine came in, it, I mean, whoever had the cocaine was like a big person. Think of it like the Andy Warhol painting. People would just flock to it, you know. If you had cocaine, then everybody wanted to be with you. Everybody wanted to hang out with you. Everyone wanted to be like you. And it was easy money. And you could get all the girls. And Well, when crank came along, methamphetamine, it was the same way. It gave status to people who normally would not have status. Being addicted to it made you, not made you, but I mean, you hung around people that you normally wouldn't have hung around. Like I said, whenever you do a drug or alcohol, the first thing it does is lower your inhibitions. It's the first thing it does. You just didn't worry too much about it. You hoped for the best. I didn't even worry about it. Like I said, the thing about Cindy is that could have been me on any given Friday or Saturday night, could have been me on any given day. You know, we all did what she did. We all did it. 
And we thought, you know, all you have to do is know who somebody was. We didn't think about, do we really know this person? Is this person going to hurt us? We didn't think about anything like that. However, I mean, I don't know if Cindy knew about Chevelle, if she had heard the rumors about Chevy. Once we all got caught up in that, it was fun for a while. And then it started to show pretty soon, you know, we weren't paying our rent or going around our families or everything revolved around doing drugs. It was destructive. It's the most humiliating thing you can do to yourself. It is. You're, it's filled with so much shame. It's just horrible. So they had a bunch of people that felt like crap about themselves, running around high on methamphetamine, and were broke because you'd spent every dime you had. And so now we're ripping each other off, not just stealing tools and stuff like that. Now we're ripping each other off for dope, and now we got problems. And it happened for a really long time. So when I think about Wes and Lauren now, I mean, that's why they were called the Speed Freak Killers. I mean, they dealt dope. We all knew they dealt dope. And that lowered your inhibitions because you wanted what they had. I knew them from partying, partying out in the country and having bonfires. They would show up, but I knew who they were. I wasn't around them a lot, and I don't know why, but I'm really glad. But Ian Lode, I knew who had the dope and who didn't. People that dealt big dope, you know, they weren't, they weren't sure. There was people that, I don't know if you know anything about drugs, but I mean, you know, you used to buy like an eight ball or a quarter ounce. That would be small time. You know, Wes and Lauren would bring in like, you know, ounces or probably more than that. That was on a lot, lot larger scale. And if you had drugs on a larger scale, then you were somebody that had status. And so they had status. As Tracy said, back in the early 1980s, people didn't have access to the internet and genuinely had no idea of the effects of taking drugs and what it would do to their bodies and minds. Sherman Tyne and Herzog stayed in the area after they left school and followed in their father's footsteps, both ending up working the construction industry. Herzog went on to set up his own plastering company, which is where we see his first recorded run-in with the law. He had a verbal dispute with a contractor over payment of an invoice in 1990. The contractor called the police as he felt under threat as Herzog had a gun. When the police arrived and searched Herzog's vehicle, they found a handgun in plain view with concealed magazines under the front seat. They also observed several rifles and a large hunting knife. His guns were confiscated from the scene. But as the dispute was a civil matter, the contractor was advised to contact a lawyer and no further action was taken. When not working, the pair were well known to drug deals and they frequented the local bars. One of these bars was owned by John Vanderheiden, the father to Cindy Vanderheiden, who later will fall victim to the two. We spoke to Cindy's sister, Kim Lovejoy who actually dated Herzog after meeting him in her father's bar, where she was working as a barmaid. They only dated for a few months, but she told us a few of her memories of him. I had met Lauren at the Linden Inn because that's where we were bartending, and then we ended up dating. He became what we thought was a family friend, and apparently that was very wrong. I 100% feel that methamphetamines, drugs, whether it was uh, heroin, whether it was whatever the case it may have been, 
that was a big role in what they did. I think that they started doing it as soon as they could drive a car, maybe even before that. I was a little shocked, but it's just after going back over all the things that we may have done and things that were said from the time that he was in a bar, it all brought up a lot of concerns that I should have seen prior to her disappearing. But you don't realize it at the time. One thing that stuck out to me the day they decided, or the night, I should say, they decided to go coon hunting. I thought we were really gonna go raccoon hunting, but it was later found out that that's not what coon hunting was. Coon hunting was looking for black people or Mexicans or somebody of a different race to either shoot at their feet or beat them up or something to that effect. Although there are many potential victims connected to the speed free killers, such as Dana McCann, Gail Marks, Michaela Garrett, and Philip Martin, we will start with the victims that Sherman Tyne and Herzog were either convicted of killing or have since admitted to. We will, however, be speaking to the families of potential victims as this series goes on in the hope that somebody somewhere knows something that can help solve these cases and bring answers to the families. Sherman Tyne and Herzog's first known victim was Henry Howell. Henry, aged 41, worked in the tool and dye trade, had a seven-year-old son, and was a member of a Native American tribe called the Lumi Nation at the time of his death. September 1984, Henry was found shot to death near his vehicle on Highway 88 in Alpine County in California, around an hour from Linden. It is reported that as well as being shot, his teeth and skull had been smashed in as if he had taken a beating to the head. Following their convictions, Herzog claimed that Sherman Time was responsible for this murder. Herzog told law enforcement that they had passed Howell parked on the highway. Sherman Tyne had stopped, grabbed his shotgun and killed Howell for no apparent reason. He then robbed him for what little money he had. The second known crime was just two months later and was a double murder that both Sherman Tyne and Herzog were convicted for. In the early hours of the 28th of November 1984, Richard Sahar, who was the manager of Stockton Waste Treatment Plant, was doing his rounds in the Roberts Island area, approximately 20 miles from Linden. It was around 12.25 a.m. at the beginning of his shift when he saw a white car and a body nearby. He immediately called Stockton Police and an officer named Peter Winston arrived at around 1.20 a.m., closely followed by fellow officers Clifford Smith and Ed Williams. Winston immediately surveyed the scene and found the bodies of two male victims laying close to the vehicle. The officers observed that both victims' pockets had been turned out and that the pockets had been cut out. Beth lifted the jacket of one of the men to check for a pulse and said that there was none, but that the body still felt warm to the touch. The two men were later named as Howard King, aged 35, and Paul Kavanagh, aged 31. Both had died following shotgun wounds in a suspected robbery murder. Clara Hendricks, Sherman Ty's mother-in-law, later testified at his trial that he had told her about an incident on Daggett Road near Roberts Island. He arrived at her home between five and six one evening in his red pickup truck and said that after him and Herzog had been out hunting, they saw a white car at the sewer pub. She said that he told her there were two black guys just laying on the ground, so they drove up to see if they were still breathing. Shementine told her that they had been shot in the face with a shotgun and that their pockets were out. He then said they left as another car was coming and that they could call the police. Clara told him he was stupid for not calling the police as his shoe prints and tire tracks were now at the scene. 
She said she read about the homicides in the newspaper a few days later, but did not tell anyone what Sherman Tyne had said and did not mention it when she was interviewed by the FBI in March 1999 either. There was a female witness who actually came forward at the time and later testified at the trial. Letitia Larkin lived on Roberts Island at the time of the murders, about eight miles from Daggett Road. While returning home about 11.25 p.m. on the night in question, she saw a small red pickup truck with a shiny grill backed into the parking space near San Joaquin River Bridge. This location is halfway between Roberts Island and Daggett Road. She said that the vehicle lights were on and that after she passed by, the vehicle pulled out behind her. Worried she was being followed, she circled back and headed towards the county jail, but the truck eventually turned off before she got there. Thinking she was safe, she turned around and headed home. As she turned up her mile-long drive, she suddenly saw headlights behind her, turning towards her driveway. She went into her house as quickly as she could and looked out from the upstairs bedroom window to see the truck backing out and leaving. The following day, she heard about the homicide and contacted the police, who came and took moulds of the tyre tracks near her property. The police later confirmed that the tracks at the murder scene and those near her driveway were similar in tread design. These tracks were later matched to those on the tires of Shemantine's pickup truck. Unfortunately, 1984 hadn't seen the last of Shermantine and Herzog's antics. Just two weeks later, on December 11, 1984, Kimberly Ann Billy went missing from the Stockton area. Kimberly Ann was 19 when she went missing. She had brown hair and brown eyes. She was 5 foot 5 inches tall and weighed about 130 pounds. Although she was last seen on December 11th, 1984. She was not reported to the authorities until two weeks later. As she did not live with family, they only realized something was wrong after she failed to contact family members after the Christmas holiday period. This is when her grandmother reported her missing to the police. It was the summer of 1985, and just under a year later, two girls from the same neighborhood in Stockton went missing. Joanne Hobson, and Robin Armtrout. In the middle of the night, August 29, 1985, Joanne Hobson snuck out of her bedroom window to go on a date. Earlier that evening, she was getting ready to go out, and her sister asked her where she was going. She explained she had a date and described the man, saying it was no one that they knew. You don't know him. The man never turned up. And when her sister checked on her before going to bed, Joanne was sleeping in her bedroom. However, in the morning, her mother found her bed empty, and Joanne was missing. When Joanne went missing, she was 16 years old, with brown hair and brown eyes. She was petite, at just 4 foot 8 inches tall, and weighed around 80 pounds. She loved fishing, crabbing, camping, and children, and she was a student of Franklin High School. When Joanne was reported missing to the police, she was labeled as a runaway, and no investigation into her disappearance was carried out. Around the same time, possibly even on the same day, Roberta Armtrout, known as Robin, also went missing. Joanne and Robin were friends and were known to hang out together. They lived just a couple of streets away from each other, and there was a rumor that they were due to go on a double date the evening that Joanne went missing. 
Robin was last seen getting into a red truck with two men in front of her mother's house near Del Mar Park. One of the men was tall and thin. This was later confirmed to be Herzog, sometimes known as Slim, due to his stature. Robin had led a troubled life since the age of 10 when she had been unwell. She had turned from a normal child into a clean freak, showering three to four times a day and brushing her teeth after every meal, which led to health problems. She married young at barely 17, but this and her second marriage both ended in divorce. Her second husband, Richard Armtrout, was in fact murdered less than a year before Robin over a dispute over another man's girlfriend. Robin's problems continued, and she became addicted to heroin and crack. In a 2001 article on recordnet.com, her sister described her as a fire-haired beauty who loved animals and babies and whose generous spirit touched everyone. At the time she went missing, Robin was 24. Sadly, her slim body was found on September 8, 1985, just a few days after she went missing, bearing the scars of a violent death. She had been raped, stabbed 46 times, and dumped face down in Potter's Creek, just outside of London. Due to the violence she had endured, she was barely recognizable with her family identifying her from the self-inflicted obscenities that she had crudely carved into her wrist and lower abdomen. Joanne Hobson and Kimberly Ann Billy's remains were found over 27 years later in an unused well in Linden. They were found together with two other victims. Law enforcement found the well after Sherman Tyne drew a series of maps showing the locations of his and Herzog's victims. Without these maps, Joanne Hobson and Kimberly Ann Billy may never have been found. On the next episode, we will speak to the families of the victims and find out more about who they were, what they were like growing up, and what happened when they went missing.